Welcome to the Bayside Church Weekly Message Audio Podcast, Cheltenham. Well, welcome. Nice to see you all. I'm going to kind of husky my way through the night, which could be quite sexy, actually. Um, <laughs> and it's going to be a privilege to carry on from last week. The last thing we said at the end of last week, and I was touched by a number of the things you had in your news here uh, this evening. Good works creates goodwill. Good works creates goodwill, and it opens people's hearts for good news. And the greatest parables about good news were provoked by a moment that all started when Jesus invited a tax collector to enjoy, to enjoy, to join his ministry team. Um, in Mark chapter 2, Jesus comes past a tax collecting booth and invites a tax collector, his name was Matthew, Levi, to get out of his tax collecting booth and become a disciple. And he does it. And that night he puts on a party for Jesus. And partway through the party, there is a knock at the door. And there are the religious police. And their big concern is this. We're checking you out, Jesus. We've seen you do some extraordinary things. But this doesn't make a lot of sense because you are saying to us that you represent the holy God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. And here you are sitting with tax collectors. Now, when you say that in Australia, it doesn't have the same kind of bite as it did in Jesus' day. Because if, if I was to say tonight, we've got three or four tax collectors here with us, most of us would not be remarkably upset. Of course, we'd don't, if you were fidgeting, we'd come and check you out later on. Because tax collectors are just public servants. They just do a job. Um, and if you're here from the taxation department, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you. But in Jesus' day, a tax collector... A tax collector was not a public servant. He was a Jewish brother who had decided to side with the Romans to line his own pockets at his own people's expense. Um, the way the Romans did taxation was a little different than the way we do. The Romans didn't try to set up taxation offices in all the countries they conquered. They used to sell the right to tax to a local businessman. So it was like buying McDonald's. You could, sell, you could buy a taxation franchise and you could tax your, your local community and you'd line your pockets, you'd pay the fee up front to the Romans and you'd line your own pocket. So they were viewed as fifth columnists and the only way you kind of get the same emotional feel as if the youth pastor here was to somehow come across somebody selling drugs to the local primary school and figure this dude really knows how to meet kids. He should be on our ministry team. And the next thing you know... Bayside hears that there's a drug dealer working for the youth group. Now there's going to be an eldership meeting at the end of that kind of conversation and that's exactly what happened that night. They showed up at the, at the, at the house to say to Jesus, what the Jimmy do you think you're doing? Don't you realise what, what, who this person is and what these people do? And it provoked Jesus. In Mark chapter 2, it's the short version. The short version, he simply said this, well, it's the sick that need a doctor, not the healthy which makes a lot of sense to me. But in Luke 15, that instance, it's kind of, you get the long version. You get the Reader's Digest version in Mark 2, and then you get the whole version in Luke 15. And in Luke 15, the Bible simply says that the tax collectors and the sinners were gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And they're upset about that. And now Jesus seeks to explain 
um, the heart of God to people who should have understood the heart of God. Because these, these people were the, the spiritual leaders of a nation that was supposed to be the spiritual center of the universe. These people are supposed to know, but they don't. So Jesus now begins to explain the heart of God, and he does it by giving him three parables. The first is the parable of the, of the shepherd that has 100 sheep and only 99 come home. Now, if you had 100 sheep and only 99 came home, what would you do? I know what I'd do. I'd say 99 out of 100 is pretty good. I'd say you lose some, you win some, you lose some. Stupid sheep. Um, <laughs> They'll teach it not to do the right thing. And I'd, I would say, pass out the shepherd pies, turn on the news, and I'd sit down. But Jesus said, it's because you don't understand the value of one human life. Because if you understood the value of a human life, what you'd do is you'd leave the 99 fat found ones to look after themselves. Now, no one's going to do that because that's, that's the 99, that's where, all the, that's where the money is. That's where the, the future is. That's my business. I'm a shepherds don't keep sheep because they like them. They keep sheep because they make money off them. And he said, who's going to leave their sheep, 99 of them, go look after one? But you see, you don't understand. God, God doesn't keep people because he wants their money. He loves them. And they're so valuable, you can't imagine how valuable they are. And when they're not home, when they're not, when they're not with the, the lover of their souls, they hang over a future too empty and dark to contemplate. And so he'll go out in the night and he'll never stop till he finds the lost one. Then the, Jesus said, I'll shock you now. He said, I'll shock you. Where do you reckon God's heart is? Well, it's obviously with the 99. These are the ones there all stay home singing the praises and doing Bible studies. No, he says, no, they're with the lost one because something that was lost has now been returned. God has a passion for restoration, absolute passion for it. He's more excited over restoration than over maintenance. And so he said, you need to know this. It's here right, right in this parable. He said this, I tell you that in the sight there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who don't need to repent. Now Jesus said, let me give you another parable because you clearly don't understand God. Imagine a woman had 10 coins and she lost one in a house. What's she going to do? Well, the reason Jesus didn't use a man in that parable because Jesus knew that if a man in his parable lost something in a house and then found it, no one's going to believe that parable. So... <laughs> Men can't find anything in the house. Um, every now and then, I can't find my socks. And I cry out, I can't find my socks. And I hear a voice from another room. If I have to come in there, oh, it's okay. I just had a boy look. I'll, now I'll have a girl look. You have to move things. I, I couldn't see it. No. So Jesus said, if a woman lost a coin, you know what she'd do? She'd come up with a strategy and she'd work systematically. I, I preach in churches all over this country. And, you know, occasionally you go to churches and they don't have a single strategy for finding lost people. They've got strategies for services and they've got strategies for home groups. They've got no strategies to find lost people. And they feel like it's a pretty good church. And I have to say, well, then you don't understand how much God cares about restoration. Because if you did, you'd put a woman in charge. You see, women find lost things. That's how they do that. She said, I'll light a lamp and I'll get a broom and I'll start in that corner and I'll systematize, I'll work. If you had a plan, it doesn't matter what the plan is. Alpha, life keys, 
door-to-door evangelism, become Jehovah's Witnesses, whatever you want. Just look for lost people. Because if you've got a plan and you work the plan, you'll find people because they're everywhere. And listen to what Jesus had to say. He said this in the same way I want to tell you something. There's more, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who, who repents because the woman found her friends and called her neighbors together and said, rejoice with me because I found a lost coin. There is something in us that's so excited, even for us, that when we find something we thought was lost, it, we just say, oh, brilliant, thank God. Well, God just loves to, to restore. He said, now I'll tell you one more parable. He tells us the story of the father with two sons. And this, I don't want to take time on this because I've got a... I just wanted, this is just the introduction. We kind of set the scene for the next parable. He said, there was a boy who one day woke up and said to his dad, Dad, are you feeling sick? Because I was hoping you might die fairly soon and then I'd get my uh, inheritance and then life could really begin. And his dad said, well, son, if that's, how you, if that's how you think about it, if you think that my relationship with you is messing up your life, I'll give you your inheritance. You go and try life out for yourself. So he did. He, he, he took a third of his dad's superannuation, dad, or his whole inheritance, he takes a, takes a third of his inheritance, that's his dad's super, and he heads off to the big city and blows it all with wine, women, and song, and then comes the global financial crisis, and he ends up in a pigsty. While he's in the pigsty, he starts thinking to himself, you know, this is not so good. And, and what I thought was so miserable, my life with my father, it wasn't so bad. In fact, it was pretty good. In fact, even, even the servants lived better. No one in my dad's house has ever eaten pig food. And he said, you know what I think I should do? I think I should go home. And, and what I'll do, I'll go back and I'll tell Dad, 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 I've, I've sinned against heaven and against you and I'm no longer worthy to be your son. Well, mate, that's not how you get to be a son. You don't get to be a son because you're worthy enough. You get to be a son because you're born in the house. You should have known that before you left. Well, I'll go back and I'll tell Dad, Dad, make me a hired servant because I'll try really, really hard for the rest of my life, Dad, to prove I could be a second-class citizen. He heads off home with that pathetic story. That's not amazing grace, by the way. That's pathetic. Well, on the way home, he's wondering, I wonder where Dad is. I bet Dad's in the back room there with his arms folded and his brow all knit up thinking bad things about me and I'll have to go in the room and crawl across the floor and kiss down on the foot. Oh, Dad, have mercy on me because I'm no longer worthy. But his dad wasn't in the back room. His dad didn't have folded arms and a knitted brow. He was standing by the gate at home looking down the road and blow me down. I, I, I think that's him. And Jesus said he hitched up his skirts. Outrageous. Eastern gentlemen never run. It's undignified. He runs down the road with his skirts. He throws his arm around his piggy son. He starts kissing this piggy little bloke. And the boy starts the speech. Dad, dad, I'm no longer worthy. He says, oh, shut up. I don't want to hear that story. <laughs> somebody, go, somebody go get me the robe, the one that we keep for the politicians and the priests when they come, because his heart's broken. I'm going to restore his dignity. I'm going to put the best robe in the house on the boy. And, and, and by the way, bring me a ring, because he, he, I'm going to restore. No, don't bring a ring. You'll start signing checks again, because... That ring is symbol of authority, and he's already blown a 30-year superannuation. You wouldn't want to let him near a check. No, I don't have second-class sons. I'm going to restore his authority, and I tell you what, I'll put shoes on his feet because he's not coming home as a slave, and only slaves have bare feet, and somebody killed a fatted calf. Well, you wouldn't want to go killing a fatted calf. That's a lot of meat. You wouldn't want to... You know, no refrigerators yet, Dad. Um, there's only four of you, you, Mum, and two brothers. Kill a fatted duck. That should be plenty of meat. No, no. 
No, no, you don't understand. I'm not killing the fatted duck. Oh, this is not just a little party for me and mum. I want the whole community to be as excited as this coming back. As, as a, I'll kill the fatted calf, man. This is a party to end all parties. And the party begins and the older brother comes home. He says, what's going on? He says, your brother's come out. He says, oh, fair dinkum. Make you sick. Not coming in. Well, his dad comes out and says, come on in. It's embarrassing. You're my eldest son. You're supposed to be upholding the honour of the family. He says, I'm not coming in. I don't like you. So what do you mean you don't like me? Well, I don't, I don't understand you. And now Jesus is explaining the very hearts of the scribes and the Pharisees who are standing in front of him. We don't understand you. I mean, I didn't come from the pub, Dad. I came from the field. Who's doing all the work around here? Who's putting the money in the plate? Who's making this place happen? I'm making your kingdom happen for you. And then useless comes home after blowing a 30 year super and it's whoopee time. Don't get it. They just didn't understand. Jesus said, listen, two things to say. Everything I have is yours. If you don't throw a party for yourself every now and then, you're as thick as two planks. And the second thing is this. It's appropriate to be excited about your brother because you see, you've had everything, mate. Everything I've got yours. You wake up every morning, you've got fellowship, you've got the Bible, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, you've got the Bible, the Holy Spirit, you've got the lot. He was hanging over hell by a thread. He was dead and now he's alive. He's, he was lost and now he's found. And Jesus told those parables to say one thing, you've got to get this, how excited God is about restoration. Well, good on you, Jesus. I can imagine the disciples and, and Matthew, the Levi, saying, yeah, God, stick it up their nose, Jesus. Now tell those, 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 those punces, the blokes from Jerusalem, tell them, yeah, they don't understand God, but you do. I love what you just said. God loves to restore. Woohoo, yeah. Stick that up your nose with a rubber hose, mate. Well, at the end of that chapter, having explained the heart of God, you can guarantee that the disciples were excited. Oh, yeah, brilliant, you know. Jesus put them in his place. But now the Bible says Jesus now turns to his disciples and said, you liked that, did you? Did you like that? Did you like how God is excited about restoration? Did you like how God is excited about finding what's lost? Well, then I've got something to say to you. Because not just for the scribes and Pharisees, that was for them. Three parables. I just got one for you. If you... Know how excited God is about restoration. You better understand something. It's not just about prayer. It's not just about singing songs and worship. It's going to be how you handle your income and your money and your time and your car and your house and every bit of wealth you ever put your hand on. Because you see, lost people and your Management of your resources are tied together like this. Listen to what the Bible says at the end of those three parables. Now Jesus told his disciples. There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions, so he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors and he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, quickly take your bill and sit down and make it 450. And then he asked the second, 
And how much do you owe my, my master? Oh, a thousand bushels of wheat, he said. Well, he said, take your bill and let's make it 800. Now, the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than other people of the light. And I tell you, Jesus said, use your worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's all gone and eternity opens up, you'll be welcomed into everlasting dwellings. Jesus told the three parables about lost things to explain to the scribes and the Pharisees, you don't understand God because he loves people and Restoration is the passion of his eternal father's heart. Then he turns to his disciples and he says this, and you guys, those of you who love me and you trust me and you're following me, now you've got to hear something. Because if you ever get it figured out how much God loves people, you've got to understand it's not just about prayer. It's about your finances. It's about how you spend your time, your wealth, your opportunities in this life. Because you've got to turn your life into a friend forever making exercise. Making friends forever. You see, Jesus here now wants to help us to understand something by giving us the parable that they call the parable of the tricky manager or the shrewd steward. Now, funny thing is I fly a fair bit. You come on an aeroplane, the first person that greets you is a steward. Now, you need to know this if you're going to fly. He doesn't own the aircraft. But he can tell you to get on or get off. I say, you don't own his aircraft? Yes, I know, but I'm the steward. And you see... Qantas have put me in charge of this thing and if you don't show me a ticket and behave yourself I'll, I'll say that you're getting off here because I may, not own the, the, I may not own this aircraft but I'm the steward and I get to make decisions about this aircraft so you better behave yourself. Um, one of the things you've got to know about the, the, the business that God has is that God has made a decision to partner with people. And so now he describes us as his managers. And you know what managers do? They make decisions on behalf of the true owner. Now, the fact of the matter is this. I used to think I owned stuff. I, I was often you know, very excited to think that I owned stuff, particularly I own a pair of set of golf clubs. Aaron Badley gave me those golf clubs. I like them. Now, if you came to me and said, how can I borrow your golf clubs? I'm going to say this to you. No, nah, I can't. You can't have them because they're mine. Now, question is, are they really mine? Well, there'd be a litmus test. If I was to die tonight, there will be people who go to the boot of my car and get my golf clubs out that next, and they're going to go take them out and play with them. And I won't be able to say a thing about it. They'll just go and do whatever they want. Now, while I'm alive, I'm saying to them, no, you can't touch them because they're mine. But if I was to die tonight, the fact of the matter is, I won't have one more thing to say about those golf clubs. And Jesus thinks, if you think you own something, let me see you get it off the planet. Because you know what? If you go and it stays, <laughs> well, guess what? They're going to just divide it up and play on, mate, because you don't really own anything at the end of the day. Naked you came into this world and naked you're going to leave. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The earth and everything that's in it. He sees himself as the owner. But God is not um, some despot 
that sees himself, I'm the owner of everything, don't touch anything, it belongs to me. He delegates things. He, he puts in the hands of every person on the earth opportunity to partner with him as a manager. And the, the, the thing about being a manager is you get to make real decisions. You can decide. That steward tells me I've got to get off the plane. I better get off because if he phones the police, they'll put handcuffs on me and take me off that plane. He gets to make real decisions. But at the end of the day, he has to render an account. So if he exercises his stewardship inappropriately, there'll be a moment when he has to give an account. The wealthiest and the poorest in the world are managers of something. They get to make real decisions about what they do. And you know what? God won't interfere. He will allow you to exercise. You've got a real steering wheel in your hands because you have been delegated as a manager of God for whatever sphere of influence he's put in your hands. And you get to make real decisions about that and you will change the outcome of how your sphere of influence touches the world because you get to run that. But the day comes when every manager will have to render an account for the things they've done with the opportunities that were given to them. There is a day coming. Every one of us are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and render an account for the things we've done in our body. It's not always that comfortable a message because it speaks to us of responsibility. And one day God will want to talk to us about that responsibility. You think you're an owner? You're not. You're a manager. And you are being asked by God. And if this was a different message, I'd take you to different passages of the scripture and say you need to know this, that it's not all just about doing everything for somebody else. He's happy for you to enjoy. He's happy for you to enjoy the fruits of of the appropriate use of what he's put in your hand. He's happy for that. But you need to know that when you're in partnership with God, you need to be exercising your leadership in harmony with his plans for the world, not just yours. That's the challenge of a manager. It's why the Commonwealth Bank are in so much trouble at the moment. Because when they managed other people's money... They didn't think of the fact that it wasn't their money. They were just the managers. And they're supposed to be making the decisions with the best interests of the real owners in their mind. That means that day by day, God puts in my hands the opportunity to make choices. And the reality is this. I have the capacity to use my decision-making power for good or for evil. Now, it's like my golf clubs. I said to the Lord, Lord, may these golf clubs never be used for evil, only for good. And I try, therefore, to win every time I play. Well, Jesus said, imagine this. There was a manager, and one day the true owner said, you know what, I've got, I got, got some stories coming to me about you. And I'm not real excited about what I hear because you are making decisions with my stuff and I don't think you've got my best interests at heart. So I'll tell you what we're going to do. We are going to withdraw your privileges as a manager. You're no longer going to be a manager. Well, have you got it figured out that that's actually going to happen to every one of us in this room? A day is coming when my privileges to run my life will all come to an end. And I will check out as a manager and everything I've got will be distributed amongst other people and life will go on. Well, he said, uh, Jesus said, the rich man found out his manager wasn't doing such a great job. So he sends him a little email. He says, Henry, I want you in my office on Monday morning. 
I want the keys to the holiday house, the boat, the plane. I want the, the keys to your company car. I want the platinum Amex on my desk and I want the books of account Monday morning because your time has run out. Well, the manager starts to panic a little bit. He says, well, flip, oh, I didn't see this coming. Um, man, I, I don't know, what am I going to do? I mean, uh, social service benefits don't exist yet. And um, the, the reality is I'm, I'm not that strong and I don't see career opportunities for someone my age or with, 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 with my skills. Oh, I don't know what I'll do. And then suddenly he has a brilliant plan. Woohoo, he thinks. I'm still a manager tonight. And I don't have to hand all that back till Monday morning. Between here and there, I have a window of opportunity. Your life is that window of opportunity. You have a window of opportunity and none of us know just exactly how many days and nights and seasons and years are in the window of our opportunity. But right now you have a window of opportunity to function as a manager. But there's a, there's a the date on God's calendar somewhere and he knows the day that you're going to hand it back the Amex card and the keys and everything you've ever owned and everything you've ever done. They're going to be back on the table and you're going to be rendering an account. Well, the, 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 the businessman figures, he says, you know, I've got a window of opportunity and I have a brilliant plan. He says, I'm going to go, I'm going to get all my master's debtors in here. And while I have the authority, I'm going to make a few friends for the future. So he brings them in. Now, can you imagine this? If you've got a, if you've got a phone call, I don't know, who, I don't know who you, which bank you've got your mortgage with. But imagine you're sitting home one day and the phone rings and it's, the, it's, it's which bank? Well, it's, it's your bank. And he says, um, Al, Al, I'm just going through the books here and I noticed that you, you got, a, you got a, a mortgage with us, 500000 Would you like to come in and talk about it? Oh, dear, we could be in a lot of trouble. Better go to the bank and have a talk about it. So I go in and sit down. Would you like a coffee? Oh, yes, please. One sugar or two? Oh, give me two. Might be the only time I get anything out of this bank, I tell you. <laughs> well, he sits on the other side of the desk. He says, Al, this is your day. Listen, you are, a, you are just a great customer. And we've had a lot of people thinking this bank is mean and nasty and unkind. So tell you what we're going to do. We're going to take your mortgage, 500, and we're cutting it in half. And as of tomorrow, you, you do not owe 500. You owe 250,000. Is this acceptable to you? Could, you? could you live with that? Oh, so you little ripper. Oh. You little ripper. I ran out of that bank that day and I'm kissing people in the street. I just went to the bank. Which bank? You should go to that bank. And, the bar, and here Jesus said, when the master came in on Monday morning, he's got people putting flowers on his desk and running up and saying, oh, thank you, we so appreciate you. And when he finds out on Monday morning what the manager has been doing over the weekend, well, Jesus said he just laughed. Oh, dear me. He sure knows how life works. Jesus said he commended the unjust steward, the tricky steward. He said this because at least he's been smart. He's used his window of opportunity. He's been brilliant. And Jesus said, I tell you what, if you understood how much God loves lost people and you knew you had a window of opportunity, 
And you knew that you had the power to make decisions today, but you're not going to be able to make them forever. And you knew that good works creates goodwill and it leads people to embrace good news. He said, I'll tell you, I'll give you the conclusion. He said, I tell you, use your worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Here's the first thing God wants to add to what we said last week. Rich people have way more economic power than they fully understand. We worked in India for the 26 years that I was involved at Mount Evelyn. And if there's anything that we were able to do over that time was to leverage the fact that we were rich people and we made friends by the hundreds of thousands because as Australians, we have a power that other people don't have. As a follower of Jesus, my possible, the, the impact I can make on this world is stunning because of the unique historical power of what it means to be born in this nation. You see, Denmark is the most generous nation in the world. They give about 1% of their GDP to the poor. Australia, historically, over the past uh, five years or so, has been running at about 0.34, about one-third of that, giving away uh, currently around about the $4 billion mark of uh, our gross domestic product for the poor of the world. And it sounds, $4 billion does sound like a lot of money, but when you understand the power of rich people, we spent $5.6 billion on chocolate. We spent $7.8 billion on pets. We spent $37 billion on fast food, McDonald's and Kentucky Fried. We spent $22 billion on going to the movies and entertainment. We spent $1.5 billion on CDs. We spent a billion dollars on television sets. When you live in a country like this, the potential of good management, of good stewardship, in terms of God's passion for lost people, is immense. The, you, you, if we don't get it, we, we will miss our window of opportunity and one day we'll stand in the presence of Jesus and he'll want to talk to us about the opportunities we had. And that's why Jesus directed this parable, not to the scribes and Pharisees, but to his disciples. If you get the first three parables, I've got one for you, Jesus said. I've got one for you. It's the parable of the tricky steward. Rich people have so many opportunities. Um, in this country, we spend about 17% of our gross domestic product on keeping body and soul together, just on necessities, 17%. But if you lived in Tanzania, you would spend at least 60%. If you lived in China or Sudan, the same thing. We have this tremendous gap between necessities and options that other people don't have. They just don't have that same opportunity. It's amazing, for example, in a country we gave away 3.8 billion, nearly 4 billion in 2011. We spent $7.4 billion on cigarettes. And here is the power of rich people. 
If all the smokers, now, if you're a smoker, I didn't say this to embarrass you. Smokers get to heaven. They get there faster than anybody else. (laughs) You can smoke. Can I smoke and go to heaven? Oh, absolutely. Keep it up. You'll be there way before me. Here is the power of rich people. If all the people in Australia who smoke cigarettes just decided to smoke one less cigarette every day, we could feed 50,000 African children for a year with that money. It's stunning what rich people can do. We spent $827 million on weight loss programs. It could have provided 20 million families with seeds and tools to make a different life. We spent $1,200 per head of population on gambling. Rich people have extraordinary options. And that's why this parable matters so much. Because you need to understand that you and I are managers in a uniquely responsible situation. We are not the same as everybody else in the world. I mean, we're human, but we've been given this privileged lifestyle. Australia has been named over the past few days as the most prosperous and the most wonderful place to live in. We all knew that. We knew. But if you go to places like Switzerland, you say it's brilliant too, and it is. I mean, there's lots of places in the world that are, that are wonderful. But when you compare what this 25 million people get to experience compared to the billions of people in the world that will never have this opportunity. We've got to understand that when you compare it to God's love for a broken world, we have an unusual opportunity. So listen to what Jesus said. Verse 10. Whoever then can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust to you true riches? True riches, um, two things to say about that. The power of God and the kingdom of heaven entrusted. I'd long for the day when the church breaks out in miracles and power because the need is so great. There is, a, there is a world that so needs the release of the kingdom of heaven. And often we get frustrated and say to God, why don't you do more? God, why don't you do more? He said, well, I'm hanging out for some stewards that kind of embrace their full-on responsibilities. Because you see, I'm not doing it by myself. I'm doing it in partnership. And so I'm looking for people who understand that and will partner with me. You've got to decide to be faithful with your little. And that means you have to learn how to manage and you have to learn how to budget. You've got to learn to tell your money where to go. You've got to learn to lead financially. My story is that when I went into full-time ministry, I took a 30% pay cut to leave teaching and go into become a youth pastor. But one of the greatest things that ever happened is my senior minister sat me down uh, on my first day of full-time ministry and he said to me, how are you going to manage your money? And I said, well, we'll be okay. He said, that's not an answer. I want to know. I had, although I have a degree in economics and though I had taught 
commercial subjects for seven years, I had never run a family budget. I'd be interested to know, I'm, I'm not going to ask you to put your hands up, I wonder how many of you have an actual written financial budget to run your life. Many, many people have never had five minutes instruction on how to do that. They haven't had it at home, they haven't had it at church, they didn't get it at school. And like, just like myself. No one had ever shown me how. He sat me down and said, you have responsibilities. And as a steward, you need now to learn how to manage your finances in order to meet all your responsibilities. Now, number, he's, and, then he, and, and we didn't start inside now. Let's put tithing on the top of the list. He didn't do that. He said to me, do you realize, for example, in ministry, you are going to have to give your family decent holidays. I had never planned for a holiday in my life. I had... 10 weeks a year off as a high school teacher, and yet we never had holidays because during the holidays, I just took up other jobs and made some more money to, to just to buy things for around the house. And yet we could, never, we could never tell whether we were in a position to actually be able to spend money or give money or not. We just never knew. He said, in your budget, we're going to put a holiday because you have to have decent holidays. Every year that I, was, I began in full-time ministry, those first, those first years, we had... Uh, we had Fully financed holidays because for the first time it was on my plan because you see, God says to you, I'm not only delegating to you my kingdom, I'm delegating to you a family. And here's one of the principles of the kingdom. If you don't take care of your family, you are worse than an unbeliever. That's right out of the New Testament, not Old Testament, that's New Testament. You are worse than an unbeliever and you have denied the faith. It matters that we learn to manage well because our children grow up in a home where God wants them to be well looked after. He wants them to grow up in a place where there's not constant fear and bickering and arguments over money because mum and dad have learned to manage. No, well, we don't get a lot of money. No, I lost 30% of my salary when I started to budget. And yet, when he sat down and created a list, and I'd never had a list, he said, your wife needs some money of her own. Well, we pooled everything. He said, well, that's not good enough. She's a woman. She needs to be able to spend money without referring to you. And so we put her in a budget. She's got mad money. She can spend it any way she wants. <laughs> My pastor taught me how to budget the first time I ever budgeted. And I want to say this to you. From the moment I began that budget, my life changed. My life changed because a bill never arrived at my house that I couldn't pay the day it arrived. And it changed my entire life. I had control over my finances and then I watched God fulfill this passage. Listen, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. You've got to learn how to close the circle. Some people only know whether they're not managing well by the way in which their credit card balance just increases from month to month. That's not good enough. That's not managing. You need to learn the spiritual principles of how to fulfill your responsibility as family leaders, how to fulfill responsibilities to see the house of God, and then the miracle of all, to find the thrill of joy-filled giving. I wasn't a joy-filled giver, because if I come to church and people start giving me another opportunity to, to help broken people or to restore people, I'm sitting there thinking, oh, I can't even put tires on my car, and everyone's me, and this is not a cheerful gift. 
there's only one way to, to, to cheerfully give, and that's to begin to create a budget in which as God begins to increase your vision and your capacity to manage the increase of your income, to learn not uh, to harvest your field to the fence lines. Jesus said to Israel, when you harvest your field, do not harvest it to the fence lines. You ought to leave a big gap, and that's for people who need your help. In other words, I want you to build a margin into your living so that you are always able to be a resource to people who have no resources. I've, I've now found, as I've learned to include a seed bag in my budget, that by the grace of God, whenever I find an opportunity to give, it is so exciting. It's exciting because I was looking for a place to give this. This is not an unexpected demand. This is something I was preparing for. Joyful giving comes when you've got a seed bag and you're looking for somewhere to sow this stuff. Oh man, that's exciting when you finally, I remember sitting in someone else's church one day and a little girl was talking about a school she was building in Africa. And I'm sitting there thinking, you know what? I got a thousand, over a thousand dollars in my seed bag. I could write that girl a check before I left that place. And it was so exciting. It wasn't, oh, I don't know how we're going to manage after I've done this. And I, was, I was looking for the opportunity. This, matters, this means learning the principles of true financial stewardship. See, it doesn't end with tithing. Oh, I, I tithe that. I, I, really? Is, is that, do you think that's the extent of your opportunity as a wealthy Australian? That's the extent. I've got a family to take care for. I've got a church that I'm part of. And then I'm in a world where Jesus said, use your wealth to win friends. Win friends. Because you see, good works creates goodwill and opens people's hearts for good news. As a result, you've got to learn to discern between obligations, needs, and wants. Sometimes, this is one of the greatest gifts that I ever learned, was when uh, I sat down with a, with a great pastor in Canada last year year before. And he, showed, he said, let me show you the, one of the things that helped our people more than anything. I helped them to not only create a budget, I helped them to structure their budget into obligations, needs, and wants. And the more they began to realize there are some things in my life, I, I, that's obligation. I don't even get to make a decision about that. It's a responsibility. Here is a need. This is important. All of these things are wants. And as I pursue my walk with Jesus, my wants begin to change. I begin to see, I, I could transfer some of this that's really quite petty. That could be transferred into a seed bag. I could be changing people's lives and right now I'm wasting it. I'm wasting my days and my years and I don't want to waste anymore. Learn to wipe out debt. Learn to get your credit card back to zero and keep it that way every month. Learn to get ahead. Learn to begin to, to, to put things aside with a, with a view to investing and seeing your children or your grandchildren be blessed because you're not just simply living in the thrill of the moment. You're living as a follower of Jesus, realizing that God is partnering with me for the sake of men and women in a broken world. That's what this parable was all about. Now, the reason I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to finish because my time is up. Um, I created um, a training program for this I call Mastering Your Money. I took my experience 
both as a, in, in accounting and economics and my teaching and then all the experience I've had from the Bible and the spiritual principles and I put it into a program I call Mastering Your Money. Now, all over Australia, people are using Christians Against Poverty and it's brilliant. Its plan is to help people get out of poverty. This is a, a slightly different thrust. It is to help people become disciples of Jesus with biblical principles and a great financial structure and begin to take the world. Father, I pray for my friends tonight. We didn't open your Bible tonight just to fill in a few moments, but to allow the light of your word to fall upon our lives and put a little light on the next step we take in our paths. Here is my prayer. Take the church in Australia and leverage these moments. At this moment, you have given us an opportunity all over the world to be light bearers and people changers. It is my prayer that in this church, right here at Bayside, a rising tide of stewardship will strengthen the ministry of this house. I don't know who you are tonight. You think, oh, I came to church. Yeah, what's he talking about? Money. That's all I ever talk about in church, money. No, it's not. No. But you have to talk about it sometimes or else you don't understand how life works. A church that doesn't talk about money is totally irresponsible because it's part of our responsibility. You came to church tonight and you heard something that kind of challenges you. And I want you in a moment to be willing to say, I heard the parable of Jesus and I am prepared to take action. I'm not going to tell you what it is, but, but there are a number of things you could do. There is the, the program. If you have had no clue about how to budget, get my program, get a small group together, take each other through. It's on DVD. I'll show you how to become financial manager. It changed my life. It'll change yours. If that's you, I want you to lift your hand. I've got to do something. I've got to, I've got to learn to be a better manager. Lift your hand. I'm not even going to open my eyes. I just want to pray for you. Father, whoever hand is lifted tonight, their heart is hearing. They're hearing. And now I pray, take the power of your word and make it action for their life. Make it action. Tonight is the night to begin, to set a course. In Jesus' name, put your hand out. You may have come to church tonight and you've never invited Jesus Christ to become the captain of your soul. This is a life so thrilling and so, so extraordinary. It is beyond, a, it's beyond full explanation. Imagine to be a partner with God in this life with eternity stretching out, knowing that I have the ability to move people from darkness to light just by the way I manage my life. You may have never embraced Christianity as that. You may have thought, oh, Christianity is just about going to church. No, it's about partnering with God. But you may have never made a decision to partner with God. And yet tonight, something stirs in your heart. You're not even sure why. But something stirs in your heart and you say, I, I, I don't God have a bigger life than I've currently got. If that's you, and tonight you would be willing to say to God, I have been a, I, I'm not even sure I've been believing in you, but I want to partner with you. And I want to say to Jesus, take my life. Take my life and let's do this thing together. If that is you, and you'll be willing to take a bold step and say to God, I want to partner with you. And it's the first time. Just lift your hand right where you are. I'll pray for you right where you are. Good girl. I'll pray for you in a moment. Is there another you want to say, yeah, God, I want to partner with you. I want my life to mean something. 
And if there's an opportunity, I will. I see your hand, sweetheart. Well done. Well done. Just one more moment. One more moment. Good, great stuff. Well done. Good girl. Take your right hand, put on your heart right here. And we'll say this prayer together because God hears prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, here I am. Take my life and let it be set apart, dear Lord, for Thee. Forgive my mistakes. Change my heart. And I'll follow you all the days of my life. Amen. We hope you enjoyed listening to this weekly message audio podcast. If you'd like to listen to more messages and find out more information, check out our website at www.baysidechurch.com.au. Church has changed. Check it out.